the RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com. All right, good afternoon. You're very welcome along to this week's RTE Rugby Podcast. Neil Tracy sitting in for Hugh Cattle this week and joined as always by Donal Lennon and Wes Liddy. Coming up a little bit later on as well, we'll be speaking to Simon Thomas of Wales Online to get the view from Wales ahead of the Six Nations opener next Saturday. Um, guys, we have a lot to get through today, so we might as well go straight into it. Our Champions Cup last 16 is neatly packaged and waiting for us in April. URC is back this week, but I suppose to recap on the Champions Cup, Donal, you were speaking last week about how the tournament has obviously been a bit underwhelming given all the cancellations and the format hasn't really excited people, but thankfully now we do have a block of last 16 matches to look forward to where we can kind of start saying the tournament is really going to begin in April. We've got Munster against Exeter over two legs, Toulouse against Ulster over two legs, and also as well, an Irish derby over a couple of legs as well. And considering everyone as well is on the same side of the draw, potential for an all-Irish quarterfinal, who knows even potential for an all-Irish semi-final. It does feel like we're hitting the start of the tournament now. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Look, there was a lot of doom and gloom, I suppose, in the some of the earlier rounds. You go back to round two, uh, I think it was five games postponed, another two cancelled. So you lost seven out of the the 12 games that were scheduled to take place. If you were told at that stage that you'd get to the round 16 uh, on schedule, then, you know, I think you'd be thrilled. And to be fair, uh, EPCR, the tournament organisers, they need a little bit of a break. They've been fighting an uphill battle for two years. COVID has wreaked havoc, let's be honest, not, not from a sporting context and beyond. Uh, it was great. You know, it looks as if there is a glimmer of hope, the announcement that we're going to have full stadia for the Six Nations. Uh, and then beyond what promises to be a brilliant Six Nations, the prospect, as you mentioned, of some really fantastic round of 16 games. Um, look again, just looking back to last weekend, you had three further matches cancelled. Uh, I think EPCR did avoid a bullet with, you know, the Toulouse-Cardiff game. There was a lot of controversy around that. I personally am thrilled that, that Toulouse have made it to the last 16. I think had the reigning champions not got into the knockout phase because of issues outside of their control, then that would have impacted on the integrity of the competition hugely. Uh, you know, it, it came down in the end to Harlequins getting a, a contentious try against uh, Cast. Uh, Stade Francais in a brilliant game against uh, Connor getting a penalty at the end. The difference in the points differential pushed them in and meant that uh, Toulouse held on to seventh position. I shudder to think what might have happened had Toulouse not got in, but um, maybe Ulster might look at that differently, having gone through the campaign unbeaten, 19 out of 20 points, and their reward is to play Toulouse. But uh, as you rightly say, Neil, it's, it's uh, some fantastic games. I mean, I watched uh, Montpellier and Exeter last weekend and... Um, just Montpellier, were just, they made 14 changes, obviously, from the team that got absolutely obliterated against Leinster. But all of a sudden, you begin to see the quality and you begin to see why they're a top four team in France. Exeter were on the rack. They came back in, could have won the game. So, look, I, I think it's brilliant and something really positive to look forward to, hopefully after a, a good Six Nations campaign for Ireland. Yeah, hopefully. Wes, it's funny, like to mention Leinster first up there with the first Irish team playing at the weekend. It kind of seems now they're just taking out 
all their anger and frustration to the CPCR on whoever their opponent is on a given week. Uh, 64-7 winners against Bath to tot up their pool totals. So even if you take into a, even if you want to count that 28-0 Montpellier game as an actual game, they scored 198 points and conceded 62. So even if you're taking a four-game average, that's an average scoreline of 49.5 to 15.5. If you want to only take the three games they played, you're talking 66-11 on average across those three games. Now, I know Bath are the weakest of the premiership teams in the competition and they played against the, the Montpellier J4s. But like they are just they are just going hell for leather on whoever they're coming up against at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, to, to use the cliches, they can only beat what's what's put in front of them. And there is a certain credit due for, you know, dealing with the lack of action and, you know, all the, the difficulties that they've had mostly around COVID. But, yeah, I mean, the other side is equally true. The opposition's been really poor. So I'd say there's still a huge amount of frustration about the 28-0 and the ramifications that's possibly had. Um, having said that, you know, they'll, they'll never say this, but I, th- I think they, they probably will feel on some level that it's not a bad quarterfinal dr- or last 16 draw for them. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think the test, like when you look at the tree of the draw and, and how it, you know, you, you think it might pan out, but like obviously there's so many caveats this year above others, but like I, th- I think it's going to be semis and finals as all, and that's what we've said all along that that's where Leinster are going to be tested. Um, and the the opposite side of the draw is is heavily weighted towards French sides. You know, Racing and La Rochelle feature very prominently there. So I, I think it's going to come right back to the same questions we were asking after they lost to La Rochelle last year. Have they made the necessary adjustments to cope with those? big, powerful, dynamic, uh, you know, French packs that, that the likes of La Rochelle have. So there are signs that they've certainly attempted to address it, but I guess we won't really know until we see it. Yeah, and Donald, that nearly kind of leads me on to the next point as well, because Wes mentioned, like, you know, how can Leinster cope with teams that have those big, powerful forwards? And it's obviously something that has cropped up with Connacht over the last couple of weeks as well, where... They've got themselves into great positions only to really just be out-muscled in the last 20 minutes of those games against Leicester and Stade Francais. Now, Pete Wilkins, their Connacht senior coach, he was doing their press this week and I was covering it. And he did make a point that while they look like very similar defeats, the Leicester one was very different to the Stade one, where in the Leicester game, they just stopped playing entirely and tried to protect the lead. And in the Stade one, they went too far the other way because they'd learned their lesson from the week before. But... It's hard not to look at them, particularly last weekend when you had someone relatively inexperienced like Jordan Duggan playing 80 minutes at loose head. You had two potential debutants coming off the bench in the front row that if they have, if Connacht have one big physical front row to just supplement the likes of Finley Bealham or Dennis Buckley who's coming back this weekend, they, they have the makings of something really, really good there. Without question. I mean, the big... The... The big question mark going into their game on Sunday was their resources in the front row. I think uh, Ward and Ilo were their two academy lads who who would they made their debut. Well, Ward didn't come on. Ilo did. Uh, we saw him in the twenties, a really good prospect, I have to say. Uh, but that was their debut for 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 Connacht. Um, 
And if you look at the element of the game, uh, there was 13 scrums in the match. Uh, I think Connacht had uh, seven or eight put-ins, but they conceded five penalties. And it was those penalties, some of them later in the game, that enabled Stade Francais to get a foothold in the Connacht attacking part of the field. And that's where they got the uh, field position to get those penalties at the end could have, uh, and got a try in the end. So, you know, if Connacht can address their issues in the front five, um, there's no doubt they'll be even more competitive than they are. Now, that said, facing Leinster is a completely different scenario. Um, and, you know, we're talking about potential issues that Connacht have in their front five. We're talking at the higher level, potential issues that Leinster may have against the La Rochelle or a Bordeaux, a Montpellier, uh, when they're fully locked and loaded. But when you flip that over, seven of the eight Leinster pack could be playing for Ireland in the Six Nations, the entire front row, the entire back row, and James Ryan. So it isn't as if uh, they're a callow pack. I mean, uh, their front row is probably as a unit. Um making strides to be one of the most powerful in world rugby. So um, uh, I, in a strange way, um, obviously the Six Nations coming up, the preparation that they have and the fact that those forwards will be playing together at such a high level, I think can work in Leinster's favour for what's coming down the line in Europe. Um, but I suppose to go back to answer your question, look, Connacht have done brilliantly. Again, some of the tries they got against Stade Francais were absolutely superb. The interplay between backs and forwards, the awareness of their support runners, giving the pass and taking a pass at the right time. So therefore, when they were generating opportunities, they managed to put the, the vast majority of those chances away. Uh, it's the, the issues around the, certainly the scrum and perhaps, uh, uh, you know, they were guilty of, of taking their foot off the pedal in that game against Leicester. Um, that must be really killing them. But look, it's a sign of progress. They're going to be up against it, let's be honest, uh, in that Leinster game, especially with the second le um, uh, leg. Well, sorry, the first leg is away in Dublin. The second leg will be in the... Uh, in the no, Adiba. second, second leg. Oh, it's the other way around. Leg, second yeah. leg will be Dublin. And yeah, so I mean, again, that, yeah, that, that, that puts the... Um, you know, gives Leinster another advantage again. But look, that's that's down the road. I think we've got to look at Connacht for what they've achieved. First time ever. Uh, in some respects, they were slightly, you could see, miffed uh, because of the, of the postponements on the Saturday. They had actually made it to the knockout phase before they, they played Stade Francais. I think they would have liked to have just said, we got here on our own merits. But um, given the quality of opposition that they faced over the, uh, the, the pool phase, I think it's been a brilliant campaign for them. I think they have a lot to work on. Look, they're far and away from the finished article. But uh, a measure of a coaching team is you look at your resources, you look at the personnel, the key playing personnel that's at your disposal. Uh, your job is to maximise the return that you get from that. And to be fair, I think Andy Friend is doing that. Yeah, Wes, it, it, does, it does feel like with Connacht, they are squeezing an enormous amount of what they have there. It does, but they won one game out of four. Um, so, and they made a great campaign, maybe. Um, or maybe, you know, the strange format where eight out of 12 teams qualify out of a pool worked in their favour as well. So, like, I do, I do agree that... Uh, 
the Stad game was very different to the Leicester one. And, you know, it was just a very good game. They happened to come out on the wrong side of. Um, they were obviously unlucky with the, the front row situation. But having said that, I thought Jordan Duggan actually, bit of a bit of a misnomer. But scrum aside, I thought he put in a really good shift, to mm. be fair to him. He showed a lot of character around the pitch to, to, to play as he did when he was under that pressure. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, there's the fact that they're so entertaining to watch, I think, and that we know that they are battling certain adversities in terms of budgets and, and playing resources and things like that makes us all, you know, makes us all admire them even more. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think they want necessarily to necessarily to be viewed just through that prism either. So, you know, if, if you were to be ruthless about it you'd say another lead squandered and one went out of four and playing Leinster with a second leg away from home isn't as rosy a picture as it might appear you know two uh two views on the same half full half empty glass there anyway exactly <laughs> um on to Munster 45-7 win against Wasps Donald was that just release the pressure valve a little bit after four real slogs in a row where it's low scoring games not too many opportunities just a nice bit of a release to have a, a more open game for Munster like that? Yeah, I think so. Look, I mean, uh, the key element for me was the was the breakdown, the quality of ball that they got uh, and the fact But I, I think the intent was there. Now, right from the outset of the game, I think Andrew Conway got four or five touches in the first 10 minutes of the game. So all of a sudden, you're playing, like you, you have a quality back three there. Zebo, Mike Haley's having a fantastic season. Um, and Conway, you know, he's he, the only Irish player uh, likely to start in the in in the opening game of the Six Nations. Uh, like he's electric, but it was Munster playing to their strengths. Um, I thought the back row were were brilliant on the day. Gavin Coombs, we got he, he gave us a reminder of what the type of damage that he was doing last year. He's had a hard time. Uh, he had illness. He had injuries. Then you had the COVID scenario with with South Africa where he was quarantining. Uh, but he looked right back to his best, I thought, last weekend. Peter Romani has been superb this year. Um, you know, a lot of people were writing him off. Uh, he's, I don't see him starting for Ireland, but I see him as a key element on the bench, given his leadership and, and his versatility across the back row. Um, and Jack O'Donoghue is a bit of an unsung hero. So, um, uh, yeah, look, I think it was far better for Munster. Ben Healy as well. Um, I thought it a really solid game. And I, I think that was significant because a lot of people might have felt that Jack Crowley should have started on the back of his performance against Cass the previous week. So Healy had to take that on board. But I think what the campaign has done for Munster, despite all the, um, the, the critique about the way they've played, is by accident or design, 18 new players have sampled Heineken Champions Cup rugby, uh, two out halves in Crowley and Ben Healy have started at the very highest level because of Joey Carberry's setbacks. And I think uh, they will prove hugely beneficial down the road. Um, uh, again, as I said, I was watching that Exeter Chiefs game. I'm not 100% sure who I prefer to be playing. There was a kind of a toss of the coin. Munster, depending on how it was going in that Montpellier match, they would have been playing against either Sale Sharks or Exeter. Now, Sale Sharks, of all their South African guys back, they're absolutely enormous. So, you know, um, you'd have been taking, Munster would have been taken on in an area where 
you know, they certainly weren't going to bully a, a sail sharks pack. Um, and it isn't as if Exeter Chiefs are any shrinking violets either. Mm. So that's going to be a fascinating game. Look, I think in some ways there's a bit of a pity in that Munster from an attacking perspective. They showed what they're capable of, but no, they go into quarantine again for another seven weeks because they won't have a full side until they play Leinster in the week before that Exeter game. So um, uh, a pity from that point of view. But look, I think we have to factor in all the COVID issues and the setbacks there. They won. They won convincingly against a Wasp team that you felt coming into it, you know, on the back of beating Leicester and Toulouse. Now, I know they were missing a couple of players from those outings, but um, they were they didn't feature. They weren't allowed feature. And uh, uh, I think, but for the Thomas Young's injury, and, you know, thankfully he seems to be okay, the fact that the game was stopped for 15 minutes, it, it took the momentum, it took the sting out of it. Uh, but overall, I think, yeah, Munster have, have reason to be very positive from that result. And Wes, looking at the, the last 16, I think it's fair to say we're not going to be seeing that type of rugby when they're playing Exeter. There are two games in the 2018-19 pool stages, 10-all and 9-7. They were um, proper attritional Munster rugby, old-fashioned stuff. And I think it's fair to say we're going to get something similar in a, what seven, eight weeks' time. You'd think so. I mean, maybe the weather conditions at the time will, will play a little bit of a part, but um, I remember at the time when Munster got the draw on Exeter, like heading, heading into that game, there was a kind of good, a fair bit of trepidation. But during the course of the game, I, I almost ended up disappointed they didn't get the win by the end of it. And, and I was nearly surprised that they kind of struggled to, you know, just about squeak by in the home leg. And then after the match, you know, I remember Johan talking about, you know, how just how highly they rated Exeter and, you know, how glad they were to get the win of any shape or form. So, like, you could argue with Exeter since they've kicked on with winning in Europe and maybe Munster have, have stalled, but I don't think Exeter this season are quite at that level. So, yeah, I think I think it it would be attritional and, and you know, just the, the pressure of a knockout game and the culture of the two teams will probably lend itself to a slog. But I do think Munster probably have it in them to, to beat them, albeit narrowly. But uh, I'd like just to go back to Donald's point on the 18 newcomers. I think, um, you know, it is disappointing in terms of developing that attacking game that, that maybe, you know, a lot of the frontline guys aren't, aren't there for the next number of weeks. But equally, I think the... Their season is almost completely reconfigured now um, by nature of these South African games being potentially rescheduled during that window and the Leinster one later on. So I think they actually now have about six or seven games potentially during this next period of time. So with the guys away on internationals and the couple of injuries they have, I think it's actually a brilliant opportunity for the likes of those 17, 18, 19 players that have seen a bit of game time to further build. And, and like we have been slaughtering them for for not getting to see this so I, I i like i'm hoping we get to really take some positives out of this next few weeks you know yeah and like graham round she was saying yesterday they are planning to to spread a lot of the minutes around because there are players who haven't seen too much game time over the last couple of months before we um before we wrap up this section of the show and bring in simon thomas to to talk about ireland wales next week ulster obviously had a bizarre win against Claremont. I was up at it in uh, in Ravenhill, and with ten minutes to go, it was it looked like it was going to be one of the great nights. And with three minutes to go, it looked like we were staring at one of the all time greatest collapses 
Um, just a bizarre last 10 minutes. But look, they're four wins out of four. They're one of three teams, along with Munster as well, uh, and Harlequins that won all four of them on the pitch, which is hugely important for them. But, Donald, they've ended up playing against Toulouse in the last 16 as their reward. Yeah, look, that's uh, cruel in the extreme. Um, but look, I think Ulster have made massive strides. I mean, they, they're going to have to look at themselves no different to Connacht in terms of what's happening in the final quarter of games. Um, they again, played some brilliant rugby against Claremont. But, uh, you know, to concede that many points in the last 10, 15 minutes of the game and put yourself in that position is something that they just can't ignore because something very similar happened against Northampton uh, in the previous round. Um, I think they're in a good position. Um, you know, when you consider Ian Henderson and um, uh, Stu McCluskey haven't played in the, those recent games, um, they have a lot to add going into that quarter final. Um, you know, the fact that they will have, I mean, I could see Ulster going to Toulouse, um, you know, if they can put it within seven, seven, ten points, even go back to Raven Hill on a steaming Friday night. Is uh, you know, I was up there. Go back to the when, when Ulster won back in '99. Some of their most famous victories were against Toulouse and and Stade Francais in a, in a cauldron like that. And there's nothing to suggest that this group of players can't replicate that. Um, so uh, look, it's going to be fascinating. Um, I think Dan McFarland, the one thing about Ulster and Munster during the Six Nations windows. And Wes is right to highlight the fact that there is opportunities there for those other players. But for both those squads, because they won't be as decimated, let's say, as Leinster, they do have this opportunity now of, of building on their continuity. And uh, you see, originally, we, we weren't scheduled to have any URC games during that Six Nations windows, whereas now, because of all the postponements, you have a load of games. So I think it's important that Munster and Ulster use those to their benefit um, but for Ulster, look, they've had a winning four out of four was a great achievement. Um, but I could understand when they were looking at the permutations on Sunday afternoon and looking at Toulouse, you know, one of those. Oh, if anomalies. Ulster were to win, Donald, if Ulster were to win the European Cup, you could potentially be looking at Toulouse, Munster or Exeter, Leinster and say La Rochelle or Racing in a final. And for Munster, it would be Exeter... Toulouse, or Leinster, La Rochelle, or Racing in a final, possibly. Like people saying a couple of weeks ago that whoever wins it, there's going to be an asterisk next to it. You win four of those yeah. knockout games back to back, there's no asterisk there, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a hundred percent ways. Um, we're going to leave it on that because we're going to speak to Simon Thomas of Wales online in just a couple of minutes. First, though, we're going to hear from Ireland head coach Andy Farrell and captain Johnny Sexton yesterday who were speaking at the Guinness Six Nations launch. And to tee up Simon Thomas coming to join us, we're going to hear the two of them speaking about what they think of Wales heading into the open round of the Six Nations next week. We'll be back in a sec. I, I heard I heard the comments uh, out of their camp um, last week regarding all that. Um, I think what they'll have is a, is a mentality that we've nothing to lose. We're just going to go out there and give it our best shot, to be fair. Um, a, a lot of those players uh, that, that have, um, have been cancelled out of the song out of our game uh, have been missing for, for, for Wales 
maybe not all at the same time, but in different in different periods over the last couple of years anyway. And I'm 100% sure that Wales have, um, have, have grown their depth because of that. Um, I suppose those those guys that have had a chance um, in 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 the in the autumn or or in the summer games etc. Uh, uh, super excited about wanting to show that they're that they're able to play in what is uh, a championship team at this moment in time, and uh, I'm sure that that'll help Wales certainly in the in the here and now in the future as well. Uh, uh, Johnny, you said earlier there was no sort of correlation between what the regions have done in Europe and, and, and what Wales will, will do now. But sort of as an outsider coming from an environment where both the provinces and the national team can, can sort of thrive together, does it surprise you there's no correlation? Does it surprise you when Wales continually sort of achieve more than the sum of their parts? Um, no, no, because I, I know this, a lot of these players from, from being on Lions tours with them. I, I played with a good few of them in, in Racing years ago as well. And... Their big focus is playing for Wales. It means so much to them, you know, and, and that's why Wales are so successful is because when these guys come into Welsh camp, it's what they work for. It's 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 what they dream of doing. And uh, they're a very proud rugby nation. And, and when they come together, they're they're always, be, you know, better than some of their parts. They're they are, uh, like reigning champions, you know. Yes, and that was Ireland head coach Andy Farrell and captain Johnny Sexton speaking at yesterday's Six Nations launch. And that brings us neatly to our next topic because we're going to talk about Ireland-Wales and we're going to cross over to Cardiff now where we're going to speak to Simon Thomas of Wales Online. Simon, thanks a million for joining us this morning. No problem. Pleased to be here. Uh, I know you were on yesterday's Guinness Six Nations launch calls as well, just as I was, and you would have heard those comments from Andy Farrell and Johnny Sexton. I mean, it's exactly what you expect from the coach and captain to be saying, but particularly after the way last year went in Cardiff, where we came into a tournament and Wales had this enormous injury list and Ireland fancied their chances and got rightly ambushed in Cardiff. I don't think they're going to be uh, prepared to be stung twice in a row. No, I mean, if you think about it, the trials and tribulations of Welsh rugby, you know, Donal and no going back years, it's uh, it's nothing new, particularly in terms of the, the problems and the issues we've had when it comes to achieving results at uh, regional level, pro team level, whatever you want to call it. And it is true what, what the, your, your lad said yesterday, but there isn't naturally a correlation because in the past, Wales have won championships and grand slams on the back of indifferent seasons at domestic level. So, yeah, that, that, that's true. I would say the difference this time around is you've got a kind of perfect storm of various different elements going on here. Not only have you got, you know, the problems in terms of, you know, the uh, poor results at uh, regional level, but you've also got the fact that a large chunk of the 36-man squad that Wayne Pivak has selected for this Six Nations have had so little rugby. You know, we're talking, I did a bit of maths on it yesterday and uh, something like 20 plus players in that squad have had less than 250 minutes since the autumn. Now, there's obviously various factors behind that, largely COVID related. You had the Cardiff and, and Scarlet squad stuck in South Africa, then in a hotel quarantine for two weeks. So... None of those players who travelled took part in Europe. We've had then a, a raft of postponements and cancellations around Christmas because of COVID cases. The Welsh derbies are decimated. 
So, you know, you've got guys coming in who are so undercooked. You know, I was going through it and this, this play is about like 40 minutes in nine weeks. How on earth do you hit the ground running against Ireland on the back of that? It's very, very difficult. So I'm wondering myself whether Pivak might turn towards those players who have had more rugby since the autumn. And interestingly, those are actually the English-based players. When I went through the minutes that people have played, Callum Sheedy has played something like 560 minutes. Bigger, 400 plus. Reece Samet, 400 plus. Tompkins, 400 plus. They've had a lot of rugby. Haven't had the same issues that the Welsh-based players have. So that'll be interesting to me to see whether just to get players on the field who are kind of oven ready, to use Mr. Johnson's phrase, um, you know, maybe he'll go down that direction, but it is a real headache for Pivak. It is. And like in fairness, I, I was looking at, I saw it was a couple of weeks ago. Now you did this on Wales Online, but you picked a kind of a speculative, here's how Wales could potentially look for the opening game of the Six Nations. And in fairness, despite the fact that like it is an injury list uh, as long as the Severn Bridge, but the backline in particular looks really, really promising. As you mentioned that you've Louis Rees-Samet, You've got Liam Williams, Nick Tompkins, Willis Halaholo, Josh Adams, Dan Bigger, and Thomas Williams. That is, you know, that's a very, very good backline. I know in the pack, you know, missing Alan Wynne Jones, missing Justin Tipperick, a lot of key players there. But if they can get some sort of ball to a backline there, there's the makings of something very good, isn't there? Yeah, well, the interesting thing as well that once again yesterday, Wayne Pivak um, hinted at this idea of playing Josh Adams at outside centre. Now, that's something he wanted to do in the autumn against Fiji. If you remember, then Adams had to pull out last minute, so there was a change of plan. The autumn ended up with Willis Halaholo and Nick Tompkins in the centre. Did a decent job in the victory over Australia. But I do think Pivak is keen on this idea. It's almost the thing of getting your best backs on the field. And probably the best back three player, one of, the, one of them certainly this season, and did very well in the autumn, was Johnny McNichol. Scarlett's fullback. Now, it wouldn't surprise me, especially on the back of what Pivak said during the media launch, if we ended up with maybe McNichol at fullback, Liam Williams on the wing, and Josh Adams at 13. And that's even more firepower, isn't it? You know, and it's always tricky, isn't this idea of trying to just shoehorn everyone in who's got ability? But, but I've seen Josh Adams play at 13 for Cardiff, and, you know, the pace and the lines he hits there, and he's a strong runner, physically strong as well. That could be very interesting, but then, you know, in fairness, Ireland aren't, aren't, the, aren't the, you know, the shabbiest in midfield, so that would be a big test for him. But you are right, that is where the strength and the, the threat lies, but as Donald, as Donald will say every single time, where's the game won? It's one up front, isn't it? It's one and lost up there. And um, there, there was a concern over the way the scrum went in the autumn, and that would be a major factor when you're going up against Furlong and Porter and Co. So that's a concern. And um, if you look at the the people who are missing from that pack, um, Pivak talked about something like 560 caps being missing. Well, a lot of them are taken up in a few people with the likes of Alan Wynne Jones, Justin Tipperick, Ken Owens. That's a real, you know, that's the heartbeat and backbone of the pack gone there. And it's going to ask an awful lot of the the quite inexperienced and, and young pack will be taking the field in Dublin. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Donal, I, I always find it interesting. I saw Dan Bigger yesterday using the phrase, if 
if you were to listen to a lot of people, we may as well not show up in Dublin. I always just get instantly terrified when I hear someone say that because you know the backs are against the wall. You know the the siege. You know you know there's a siege mentality there, and you just go, "Oh, I've, I've seen this movie before." Yeah, we've seen it many times, and I think uh, you know, despite the the well documented issues around the regions of Wales, despite the fact that once again they haven't a, a team who've made the knockout phase in Europe. People have to understand that there is a different mentality surrounding a Welsh player. The minute he goes into that environment in the Vale of Glamorgan, the minute he's surrounded by uh, Welsh national colours, it just automatically elevates him onto a different level. Um, and when you look, I mean, Warren Gatlin specialised in using that underdog's tag, in using the fact that uh, a lot of the form of players coming into a Six Nations or an Autumn Series or even a World Cup wasn't particularly good, but they have this transformative element within the Welsh that, uh, you know, once they, they come into that environment, uh, they're always far better than the sum of their parts. But I think when you look at the, 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 the makeup of the Welsh team, albeit now the, some of the incredible names that we're talking about that are missing, they always, in, in the past 20 years, their players have formed the backbone of Lions test teams. And that's, you know, that continues to be the way. I mean, uh, now, obviously, when you're talking about the likes of Alan Wynne, Ken Owens, Justin Tipperick, uh, Josh Falatow, all these guys missing has to have an impact. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, Wales have quality behind the, the scrum. Um, Simon has, has just mentioned some of the names there. And, and Josh Adams, again, uh, an outstanding player, uh, a British and Irish lion, uh, could well be more impactful. We've seen over the years, People like George North um, are, are uh, you know, moving from the wing into centre with good effect. Uh, so you just can't underestimate the Welsh. The difficulty will be, I think, Simon, I hadn't realised uh, just the lack of game time for a lot of those Welsh-based players. That that's an ele- it, it is a problem in some degree. It depends, I would say, on what those Welsh players have been doing in their regions. Because if you make the comparison, you, you take Leinster. Leinster hadn't played for five weeks before they went into that Montpellier game. Um, you know, a lot of their players, Johnny Sexton had played no rugby since the All Blacks game, but they were able to hit the ground running. But that was down, I think, to the quality of players they have in the Leinster setup, to the quality of training and, um, you know, physical interaction that they had in their training. Whether those Welsh players have been doing that level of work in their districts um, and, and, and are able to bring that into international camp, uh, that is going to be a, a problem. And bear in mind, Wayne Pivak, who I have to say I have a huge amount of time for, uh, you know, he did a brilliant job with the Scarlets. He's had a, a difficult time since he's come in with Wales. I mean, COVID has been an issue almost since the day he arrived. Um, and injuries also. I don't think he's ever had a full deck from which to play from. But... Um, you know, he's turned adversity, if you go back last season, turned adversity in November into a campaign, a Six Nations campaign that, let's be honest, nobody saw coming. Now, I don't know, Simon, how he managed with the referees this year if he if the opposition managed to keep 15 players on the pitch for, uh, for a lot of the games, then it might be different. But Wales were within a whisker of winning the Grand Slam. Go back to that, their game against France, an incredible game. So, look, I think... We know what Wales are going to bring. Uh, the one thing Ireland have is that continuity with regard... Like, you're going to have a 12 Leinster players started against New Zealand. 
I'd be very surprised if any of those 12 players, if they're all fit, don't start against Wales. So you have a level of understanding and continuity and selection there, which is always a plus going into your first game of the season. Um, so, look, Wayne Pivak is having to cram a little bit in his two weeks, whereas by comparison, maybe Andy Farrell is able to fine-tune what he did last November. And I think that's going to be a, a big element of what happens in the opening game. Yeah, it's interesting. My concern, Donald, I think if I look at all the aspects of this game, it would be the collisions, physicality that Ireland will bring. If you go back to that game last year, um, the surprise victory for Wales in the opening match, the back row forwards for Wales on duty that day, four of them got on the field, Dan Lidget, Josh Navidi, Faletau, Tibrick, all top quality performers. Yeah. And, they, and there was a... The, an island were matched physically, which takes some doing. Now, all four of those are missing at the moment. I mean, clearly, you've had the likes of Tane Basham come through and had a great autumn. Still only 22, though. You know, a dynamic, exciting player. Um, but that would be looking at the, the, the contest as a whole. Can Wales deal with the physicality of the Irish forwards? I mean, I watched that game against New Zealand, where Ireland won in the autumn. It was just relentless. Just wave after wave after wave of carriers. Now, Pivak brought Lydia in specifically to do that job last year. Ironically, he only lasted 10 minutes, if you remember. But in that 10 minutes, he kind of set the tone for what happened during the, the match. Just a series of, I think he might have been on Omani or one of the big carriers, just stopped them in their tracks. And that, that sets a tone, doesn't it? And that would be my concern. Now, and it's telling for me that Pivak has included Ross Moriarty in his squad. Now, Ross hasn't played a single minute since the autumn. He did his shoulder against the All Blacks in October. He makes his uh, comeback for the Dragons this weekend against Benetton. I think if he comes through that unscathed, I could well see him involved because he does bring that, bring that abrasive physical edge, which I think Pivak will feel he may well need to try and survive against this onslaught that comes in terms of carrying from Ireland. Simon, in terms of captaincy, Dan Bigger is taking on the role this time around in the Six Nations. How is, how is Bigger viewed in Wales as a leader? Obviously, we know he's an outstanding out half, brilliant player. But in terms of leadership, it's not really a role we've seen him do too much before. No, it was interesting. I mean, that was one of the big things to come out of the, the media launch was just how well he spoke, you know. And I know that's only a part of the job, but it is... A quite an important part of the job dealing with the media spoke so well he's so easy he was a former drama student at school you know you can he's got that element to him now of course the issue has often been that people have felt that dan has acted like skipper while not being skipper you know he's, he's, he's never been short of a word on the field and you know spoken to the refs in the past perhaps when it wasn't his role to do that well now it is he's got free reign now in a way but i think there still is that element isn't there as a skipper Donald will know this, you know, you, you pick your time, don't you? You pick and time, your moment to say something, your judicious moment, save it for the really important moments. Sam Warburton was basically good at this, had a good relationship, a good rapport with referees, Alan Wynn as well. So bigger, you know, he won't be, he won't be lacking in the in a willingness to come forward and say things, um, but it's, I guess, choosing the moment, keeping the head, keeping the composure. And I suppose the other aspect is, is he asking too much? You know, he's going to be the navigator of the ship, calling the shots, running the tactics, operating 
the machine around him and the captaincy as well. A lot to ask, but, you know, having listened to him this week, he, he seems to be relishing the opportunity. And what he will do is, he, you know, he will bring a maturity to it in terms of, you know, 90 plus caps of international experience. And, and you know, it, it, I think that he is someone who has developed as a leadership figure within the group while not being captain. If you look at the rest of the squad, he really was the, the obvious selection because the two guys who did the captaincy role in the autumn after Alan jones got injured, Jonathan Davis, great player, but didn't feature in the final match in the centre. And then Ellis Jenkins, incredible story, coming back after three years out with his injury. But he's, he's really a seven, operating at six. And as I say, with Moriarty coming back, perhaps you couldn't be sure of Ellis starting as well. So in terms of the nailed-on starters, Dan Bigger has been Pivac's go-to 10. So really, the fact that Adam Beard, you know, pretty inexperienced captaincy-wise, is the vice-captain says a lot in terms of that they, are, they have been stripped of this raft of leadership with no Tipperick and Ken Owens, who would have been other contenders. So he really was the, key, the clear candidate, Dan. And um, yeah, I'm sure you'll uh, be interested in listening to the ref, Mike, this season. Certainly will in ways. It's funny listening to Simon there talk about the qualities and challenges of Dan Bigger as out half. It is almost word for word what we would have been saying two years ago when Johnny Sexton took on the captaincy uh, for Andy Farrell's first campaign. Yeah, similar characters and I'm sure it's always spiky when the two of them square off against each other. It's definitely going to be interesting to, uh, to listen to the ref, Mike, as Simon said, but like you'd have to echo almost all of what the lad said in terms of like it's obviously well worn that Wales can turn up in regardless of the background circumstances and produce a performance as we saw last year. It's almost crazy to think back how close they did come to a Grand Slam last year with everything with everything that was going on. But at the same time, last year more than any other probably isn't any kind of a barometer because it was such an artificial environment across the championship last season with the lack of crowds and everything else that came with that. And so much water under the bridge since with, for both of the sides and, and you know, mostly positive stuff for Ireland and, and, and the opposite for Wales in a lot of ways. So with the caveat that we expect, we know Wales are, are often primed for an ambush when, when, when you listen to the names that, that Simon rattled off there and, and the context of the team coming together, I mean, you'd have to think it's a bridge too far this time around. Yeah, it's going to be tough. Simon... With that, a 20-point win for Wales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Simon, that brings me nicely to my uh, my last point for you before we leave you go. What are you thinking for, for next weekend at the Aviva Stadium? And overall, how many wins are you thinking for Wales? Um, I'll deal with the wins first. If Wales... <laughs> If Wales win three matches in this championship, even though they are the title holders, if they win three, I think that'll be a major achievement. Now, traditionally, the blue home years, as we call it, Scotland, France and Italy. I mean, Wales have had a very good record, obviously, against Italy and also against Scotland at home. But Scotland are, you know, an impressive outfit now. France, we know what they can do, just mesmeric at times over the last year. Then England and Ireland away are very tricky. So if Wales were to win three, I think that would be more, that's more than people in Wales are expecting. I can tell you, there is there is a sense of trepidation, and particularly about going to Dublin. I guess on the back of two aspects, really, as I said, that performance against New Zealand, 
and also the performances of the Irish provinces. Um, I know there's this idea of the lack of correlation, but it's got to help. It's got to help when you come into camp when all four of your teams, I think, are in the, the Champions Cup knockout stage and there'll be, there'll be a confidence there. And you don't seem to be too hard hit on the injury front. I think it's just Henderson is the only concern, isn't it? Um, so I compare everything logically, logically points to an Irish victory in Dublin. But we are a wonderfully illogical nation at times in Wales. So um, hope does spring eternal, but the hope is rather... Um, rather diminished and and, uh, and shadowed by reality at the moment. <laughs> neatly neatly sum up, Simon. Are you going to be able to, are you in a position to make the trip over for the opening game next week? Are you coming? No, no. Um, yeah, no, I'll be, I'll be on home soil uh, watching it from here, um, from behind the sofa um, with my notebook in hand. And uh, I just, I suppose more than anything, mate, it's just great to see fans back for the game. That's what I would say. Yeah, 100%, 100%. Well, we hope you enjoy it. And thanks a million for joining us on the podcast this, uh, this morning. My pleasure, no problem. That's uh, Simon Thomas of Wales Online. That's all we have time for the podcast here this afternoon. A reminder of what's coming up this weekend. We have two games on RT2 in the United Rugby Championship this Saturday. Connacht against Glasgow. That's 2.55 kickoff at the sports ground. Then Zebra against Munster follows at 5 o'clock. Then Friday night, Ulster taking on Scarlets at Kingspan Stadium. And you've got Cardiff at home against Leinster also on Saturday night as well. Uh, RTE Rugby Podcast will be back next week. Thanks for listening. The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com.